Good morning, everyone. I greet you in the precious and wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to be here with you, recognizing that God is here. Amen? This is just not a gathering of a club or a social event. This is a holy event. This is a joyful event. Amen? God is here. Do you believe that? I have a somewhat solemn obligation to fulfill today. I have prayed much as to just how it should be handled for the spiritual benefit of the body of Christ here at CBC and for the glory of God. I believe that there's always the presence of God's grace in the midst of our sin and our failures in life, especially if it is our determination to honor him in what we do. I believe that he has shown me how he can use what I'm about to share with you as a vital teachable moment on many, on many levels of our corporate and personal fellowship as members of the incredible body of Christ. And therefore, I have decided to do what I'm about to do. Sounds somewhat threatening, doesn't it? Mm, I wonder what's going on here. It really isn't. I'm just trying to be melodramatic, that's all. But let me set the stage. The theme of my message for today was set since last week, or two weeks ago, prior to my leaving for the vacation. I was to continue my exposition of the delightfully romantic novel of Ruth. Beautiful book. Beautiful piece of literature. I was going to enjoy talking with you about Ruth dancing with her Redeemer, and then put it in the context of our redemptive dance with our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what the book of Ruth is all about. The dance of redemption. Beautiful. And I was looking forward to that. I even started to feel romantic. I was going to have the, 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 I was gonna have the flowers and the candles all setting the stage, you know. That was my plan. Prior to my leaving, I had arranged for what was described to me as an evangelistic team of young musicians from Lee University, and I got nothing to do with it, it just happened to be Lee, from Lee University to minister at the PM service last Lord's Day. Fast forward now. Here's a note I sent to the pastoral board upon my arrival after listening. to what was supposed to have been a night of music. I listened to the tape. The re as a response to listening to the tape, I was led to send this immediately to the pastoral board. I headed it, I titled it, Last Lord's Day PM Service, My Failure to God the Flock. Brethren, I have just listened to the tape of last Lord's Day PM service, in which the music team from Lee University participated. I was dismayed to hear the message, to say the least. Their ministry was supposed to be in one with a purely evangelistic emphasis by their music team with a brief sharing of the gospel. The theological emphasis that I heard was entirely contrary to what was communicated through my conversation with their coordinator on their website through the email. 
And of course, it was absolutely contrary to our doctrinal and biblical position. I sincerely apologize for this failure on my part to guard our pulpit from such erroneous teaching. If I were present, I would have, without a doubt, publicly stated this from the pulpit at the time. I am doing so now. And I quoted the scripture, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not, spe not spearing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. I apologize to you for dropping my alertness in this situation. This incident has increased my determination to better examine and evaluate the doctrinal position of those we allow to minister from our pulpit. Again, please forgive me for my lack of oversight regarding this specific event. I just want you to hear a small example of what it was that prompted this action on my part this morning. Because I know that most of you probably were not here because it was a PM service. <laughs> and that's why I debated for a while as to whether or not I should do this morning and just leave it for the PM. But you see, this is a teachable moment for us and I want to focus on that. Before I explain that, though, I want you to hear these excerpts just to tell you what it was that has saddened me and has gotten me to this point today. So, Nathan, would you play those two clips, please, one right after the other, please. what it says in the word. We don't know that we can lay hands on the sick and they can recover. We don't know that we can speak to the mountain and 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 be it and tell it to be thou removed and cast into the sea. We don't know that we can pick up serpents and we can drink any deadly thing and it won't come into any harm to us. We don't know that all of these things that we can do and all of these things that we're protected from because we don't know, we don't read it in the word. Because, oh, hallelujah, I am up against some demons and some devils in that school. And sometimes I, I got to go in my office and I got to say, look in here, Satan, you ain't going to act up in my class today. I don't care who you are. We ain't going to have you acting up in this class today. And I have the right to do that because I know who I am. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. And because I'm a son and a child of God, then God gives me the right and the authority to use his name. Praise God. And so everything that I speak to, everything that I call out, everything that I cast out, it has to obey. Not because of what I've done, it's because of Jesus Christ that lives in me. And the authority that he has given me as a son of God. Hallelujah. So I have the right I have the right to speak those things that be not as though they were. I have the right to, to speak to the mountain because I have the faith the size of a mustard seed. 
Praise God. I have much more faith than that, but Jesus was using a, an example. Praise God. I can speak to the mountain and say, be thou removed and cast into the sea. I can speak to it. Glory to God. There was a song that came out a long time ago that says, I'm climbing up. I'm coming up the rough side of the mountain. Hallelujah. When the Bible tells me that I can speak to the mountain and say, look, get out of my way. You're in my way. And guess what? It has to obey. Hallelujah. I can speak and go into my classroom and speak to those demons and devils and tell them not today. You're acting up in here today. And they have to obey. Praise God. I can speak to I can speak to parts of my body that's aching and needs healing and I can tell it to be healed and it has to be healed. Hallelujah. I can pray over you and I can speak things. Praise God into your life and it has to do so. Praise God. You have that right. You have that authority. Praise God. I'm sick and tired of the devil beating us up because we don't know who we are. I'm sick and tired of the devil uh, blinding us and telling us that we can't do this because we don't know who we are. Get in your word. Study your word. And, and find out who you are if you don't know. Find out who you are. Praise God. Okay, Nathan, that's good. Thank you. There was much more on that, but that's the theme of it. The theology proposed by this young man is absolutely in opposition to what we have and continue to proclaim from this pulpit. In fact, not only does it represent a gross misinterpretation of the Word of God from our perspective, I believe it actually borders on outright heresy if you heard the entire message. My pain today is that it was preached from this pulpit of which I am the leading guardian and protector when it comes to false teaching. That's my pain. And so I therefore ask for your forgiveness for my failure on this occasion. This is where I truly thank God for his grace toward those who fail or sin against him, especially his servants who should know better. That's one level of this incident that we should use as a teachable moment. Showing the obligation and responsibility of us as pastors. We are to be guardians and protectors of our people and be ready to defend false, uh, uh, off false teachers when they come. That's a responsibility. We failed here, I failed here. We're already trying to think of things to put in practice so it doesn't happen again. That's one level as it impacts the leaders. Another level though relates to those who heard the message. Thus far, I have not been personally approached by anyone who is present when this message was preached to complain about it. <clears throat> that saddens me. There seems to have been very little, if any, discernment of the serious errors that were proclaimed. That saddens me greatly, especially because this is a very concern. This concern has been so prominent in my ministry here through the years. Not only that, I have preached about these issues, these very issues. 
And so in some sense is very troubling to me. The grace here then is that this incident presents a teachable moment for us to consider the issue together as leaders and as people, so that in the end, we may both learn how to prevent it from happening again. And if it does happen, to know how to respond in a biblical manner. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. That's the stage. That sets the background for what I'm about to do. So I want us to look specifically at what was taught right now. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, I actually spoke from this passage at least three different times over the past two years from this pulpit and over ECB, discussing the very same things. This should have prepared and equipped you in some fashion to be able to detect any error that might have been taught by anyone else. And so what I will do now to demonstrate the fact that we have in fact taught this before, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And to show you how easy it is for us to hear things but not hear. He says, is that possible? Yes. God himself said to Isaiah, you're going to preach, the people will hear, but they won't hear. This, I think, can be a demonstration of that. So let's stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And what I'm going to do now is simply, and I'm going to do it purposely, read from the text that I preached here a year ago and two years previously. That's all I'm going to do. The title of the message was, What are we to do now that the resurrection is over? Because that's the passage that is dealt with in Mark 16. And I said, please turn with me in your Bible to this passage. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9. This is my, I'm not sure that the version that I want on the screen, but my version of the text. Early on the first day of the week, after he, that's Jesus, arose, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had driven out seven demons. She ran out and told those who were with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, notice now, they did not believe. What I'm trying to do here is to emphasize the fact that the apostles did not believe what was said about the resurrection. After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They went back and told the rest, notice now, but they did not believe. Then he appeared to the eleven disciples while they were eating, notice now. Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because, notice now, they, this is, they're talking about the apostles now. They did not believe those who had seen him resurrected. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The one, notice now, who believes and baptized will be saved. Those who believe, that's the problem. Who is it who he's speaking about, about believing? But the one, notice now, who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those, notice now, who do what? Who believe. So the important point is, who are these who believe. 
They will drive out demons by my name. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands and whatever poison they drink will not harm them. They will place their hands on the sick and they will be well. That's the passage this young man was working on. And the, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. They went out and proclaimed everywhere while the Lord worked with them, with them, and confirmed the words to their company's signs. Their word. Who is it that he's talking about? The entire section here, verses 9 to 20, has been and continues to be a source of controversy among Christians. Because some of the oldest manuscripts we have of the Bible do not actually contain these verses. Some scholars have therefore concluded that they should not be contained in the book of Mark at all as an authentic text. Some modern versions, if you look at some of the versions that you have, do not include it in the text. So if they do, they put it as a footnote with a note and they leave it out. It is therefore very problematic when we base the doctrine of belief only, only on this passage. And by the way, that's the only place where hand and snake drinking poisoning is mentioned. You see what I'm saying? So it's a very dangerous thing to base a doctrine on such a, on such a passage. But then I'm going to move ahead a little bit, otherwise I'll be preaching the, our sermon again. Mark moves on now to tell us there is something else we ought to do with the resurrection message. Not only are we to believe it and proclaim it because we believe it, we are also to live it out. Now look at verses 17 through 20. These are the verses that have caused much, many evangelical Christians to readily accept the proposition that they are not a part of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 17. These signs will accompany those who believe. The important thing is who are those who believe. They will drive out demons by my name. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands and whatever poison they drink will not harm them. They will place their hands on the sick and they will be well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and proclaimed everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Notice now, and he confirmed the word through the company's signs to those who believed. Believe what? And the context is believe the resurrection. Those who believe the resurrection and preach it are given special powers to authenticate the message. In the context, you'll see he's speaking about the apostles, not all the Christians. The passage is clear. The good news of the resurrection of Christ is that those who believe receive power to have their sins forgiven, power to have their lives changed, and power to live lives supernaturally. But remember now, and I, I believe this is the key to the correct interpretation of the passage, he is stating this in the context of perversive unbelief of the early disciples. They did not believe. They could not go out and preach the resurrection if they did not believe. They did not believe the credible witnesses. And notice, the significant thing here is that Jesus himself expected the eleven to believe before they saw him. He wanted and expected them to believe the reports of the eyewitnesses who had seen him. They were trustworthy persons and were reporting what they themselves had actually experienced. They should have been enough. That should have been enough to convince these disciples, these apostles, that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
So concerned is Jesus about this that he rebukes them for his unbelief. He takes them to task because they refuse to believe those who had seen him. There's little doubt here, my friends, of the importance that he gives to the need of believing eyewitnesses. That is, believing before you see. This is the record of eyewitnesses. We haven't seen anything in this book, but we believe it, right? That's what he was expecting here. The witnesses were still alive at the time. Now, listen carefully. This is vital to the interpretation of exactly who it is that Jesus is referring to when he says those who believe. See, right away, every believe, body believers means to whom the gospel is preached. But if you read this very carefully into context, you'll see that's actually referring to those who were supposed to preach it, but didn't believe it at the time. Normally, it is taken as those referring to all beliefs of all time, since that's the founding of the church. This has resulted in the teaching that the signs mentioned here are to be true of, or as the text says, follow all believers. Now, if that is true, most of us are in plenty of trouble. Because I can't remember drinking any poison, especially playing around with snakes. But it's amazing how we just get up and spout these things off. It sounds so good. Praise the Lord. Everybody accepts it. And it's false teaching. It's false doctrine. And we just listen and take it in because it sounds so good and somebody is shouting it. His emphasis in this passage is not all believers. His emphasis is the early disciples and in particular the apostles to whom the message of the gospel is first given. A group of men who in the context of Mark's gospel all first refused to believe the resurrection message even though delivered by credible witnesses. They did not believe. That's the background and context in which this verse must be interpreted. You just can't snatch it out. Now, while there are other passages of Scripture that speak of the gifts that we are to be exercised by believers, it is clear that this passage has a particular application for the, temptation, for the authenticity of the message preached by the apostles. These were signs to follow the apostles who believe in the resurrection and was preaching it. And the signs were to demonstrate that they were true witnesses of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the signs spoken of. See, I'm taking time today to do this because this stuff is going all around. You listen on the radio, you hear it, and our Christians don't discern. They don't, you just, they just, they just soak it in like sponges. And we're living in a day where we cannot allow that to happen here. He says, in my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Here's a note from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Quote, The signs authenticated the faith the early believers proclaimed, not the personal faith that any one of them exercised. Do you understand that? It authenticated the faith of the early believers that they proclaimed, not the personal faith that any of them exercised. In other words, it was the truth that was being Authenticated. In light of this and historical evidence, it is reasonable to conclude that these authenticating signs were for the apostles at that time. Now, I might add this, by the way, 
That's the quote from the Bible. My, um, this is what I preached to you before. Did any of you remember this at all? But I would add to this. But it is open to be repeated if the same conditions that occurred in the first instance during the beginning of the church should occur again. In other words, if the same things happened back then, you have a position the gospel has never preached anywhere, never heard the name of Christ or anything else, then I believe this is possible to happen again. I say again, though, these were powerful signs that had their fulfillment in the life and ministry of the apostles. We see some of them, such as speaking with new tongues, healing, and casting out demons in the life of the early church. Now, with reference to the picking up of snakes, it is important to note that from a grammatical point of view, the Greek word, now look at your text, because I want to teach you this. We're teaching this morning, we're not preaching at you. The Greek word translated pick up may also be translated cast off or throw away. And is used like that in other passages, the same word. Listen to what Strong's and Hans Lexian says, and I want you to show this is just not my opinion. This is what Strong a lexicon. Lexicon is a Greek dictionary type thing that tells you the meaning of a word. It says it means to bear away what has been raised or to carry off, to move from its place, to take off or away what is attached to anything. Notice that? To cast away something that is attached to something else. I believe that these words could therefore be a specific prophetic reference to what Paul experienced on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28. Let me read it for you. I don't know if Alan can put that up on the screen. I didn't give it to him. Acts 28 verses 3 to 5. This is what it says. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. In other words, it attached itself to the hand of Paul. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to die, to live. However, he shook the creature off. See that? He shook the creature off, that which was attached to him, into the fire and suffered no harm. I believe that's what we're speaking about in Mark chapter 16. Right here. Notice also with reference to the drinking of the poison. It is a conditional statement. In other words, he says, if they drink deadly poison. In fact, the structure here could also be if they drink poison and if they handle snakes. If the conditions arise, it has the idea of adverse situations happen and they were forced to drink poison. They were forced to, uh, to face a snake. Then these things would happen. But let me go on here. Listen to what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. Quote, this promise of immunity of, by divine protection in either situation, that is snakes or poison, refers to occasions when persecutors would force believers to do things they did not want to do. This does not warrant voluntary snake handling or drinking of poison. Practices not attested in the early church. They have some people in the Kentucky mountains in Tennessee who do this. They're dying off one by one because the, the snakes are killing them. 
That's true. In fact, one of the founders and his wife just died last year. Some have been bitten 80 times, but they died. The New Testament records, records no actual insistence or instance of either of these experiences. Nowhere else is only mentioned here. However, even with reference to these signs and wonders being done in the early church, the Holy Spirit is careful to point out that it was the apostles who were primarily involved and not the believers in general. Listen carefully now. See, this is why we must read the word carefully. Listen carefully to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place. A lot of people stop right there and say, see, that means that all of the believers were doing these signs and wonders. But what does the text say? Listen carefully now. Through the apostles. Do you see it? The signs and wonders were not being done by the individual believers. They were being done by the apostles. The Holy Spirit is very clear. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, not believers in general. Mark is making the same point. In addition to the usual spiritual gifts, Mark mentions others that many who emphasize them conveniently leave out today. Picking up of serpents and drinking of poison. How many people do you say ever see say that they're going to do that? Who emphasize these things? Bring me a snake, I'll show you. Bring me some strychnine, I'll show you. You don't see that. You don't, they talk about the other things, but not these things that can bear evidence immediately. Now, you can see this has nothing to do with what these folk are doing in the Kentucky mountains who handle rattlesnakes and drink strychnine as evidence of their faith. Actually, if you investigate these practices, and I've started to do that again, you'll find that this is really affirming a lack of faith on their part because many of them die. So rather than showing faith, it shows a lack of faith. See, that's the point. And remember now, the Bible says, what is not of faith is sin. This is not what the gospel is, this is not what Mark is talking about. Mark is simply saying that these early pioneering apostles who believe in and preach the resurrection would have power to survive physical attacks upon their lives. Bitten by poisonous serpents, they would not die. If they accidentally drank poison or even were forced to do so, they would not die. The idea is in the context of going out proclaiming the resurrection in which they believe and there's opposition. God says, I'm going to protect you from those things. Even to the point that you drink poison, you wouldn't die. If a snake bites you, you won't die. But it's in the context of those who believe in the resurrection preaching the gospel. My point is this. This was only true of those apostles who truly believed in the resurrection of Christ unwilling to proclaim or preach what is true. That's Jesus speaking. He's addressing the apostles who still were not believing. Now he said, what about the baptism? He says, you've got to be baptized as well. Wasn't the disciples baptized? Well, if you go on in that same book, the book of Mark chapter 10, this is what you'll read about baptism. I'm going through this very carefully this morning because I want you to understand the importance of knowing the scriptures and not being superficial. 
Notice what he says in verse 38, chapter 10. Jesus said to them, this is the apostles, you do not know what you are asking. Remember they wanted to serve with him as leaders and all of that? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Notice now, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. That's the baptism he's talking about, not water baptism. Are you getting this? Listen carefully now back to Luke chapter 16. He says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed them. Here we see the apostolic preaching was confirmed by the signs the apostles performed as the Lord worked through them. Now listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, trying to show you who did these signs. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle's were, formed, were performed among you with perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Notice the phrase, the signs of a true apostle. It didn't say a sign of every believer. Look at the word, do you see it? Look at the word. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. He's talking to believers. With all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. He's saying to believers that the apostles had signs accompanying them and you didn't have them. And so here we see the apostles understood that they were given the power to work certain attesting or confirming miracles to confirm the word preach. Paul indicates there were signs of a true apostle. Just as the apostles held a foundational and formative place in the establishment of the message of the New Testament, so there were certain special signs that were given to them to authenticate their work. Listen now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we ne neglect so great a sign? He's talking about Christians now. He's talking unsaved here. He's talking about neglecting our own salvation here. But we'll deal with that more fully. This is another point here. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard. That's the apostles. God also bearing witness with them, the apostles both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. That's the apostles, not every believer. Here again, mention of the various miracles and signs by which God bore witness of his word. In fact, it can be demonstrated from scripture that Paul experienced most, if not all of these things mentioned in Mark 16, except there's no mention of drinking poison, but everything else Paul experienced. It was a prophecy of what the, what the apostles would experience. And so, the message is unmistakably clear when we put the passage back into its context, which, which every passage should remain in its context. A climate of unbelief prevailed among these disciples, these apostles, and in particular these apostles, as the word about the resurrection was brought to them. And so we see that Jesus is addressing these words, not to those who believe the gospel, but to those of his, of his apostles who 
disbelieved the resurrection message to the, to the people who brought it to them. When he says to them, these signs will accompany those who believe, he's speaking specifically about disciples in the upper room, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Mark is saying here, what he's saying here is, that what you do with the resurrection message now as believers, since the resurrection is, oh, remember I spoke, I gave this message in the context of what we call Easter, resurrection, Lord's Day. So what do we do after this day is over? My admonition from the passage, you believe it first. How do you show you believe it? You proclaim it. And then when you proclaim it, you live it. That's exactly what these apostles hear. Now, here's my point. Boy, that's good. The clock is gone. Thank you very much. <laughs> the young man who preached that message last Lord's Day PM, the one we just listened to, misunderstood what he has in Christ or who he is in Christ. He was admonishing us to know who we were, but he didn't know. You see, listen to him carefully. He would think that he is Christ. Listen carefully. You see, this comes from the false teaching that says because we are the children of God, we take on the nature and become God ourselves. And because God begets God, the same way humans beget humans and dogs beget dogs, not fish or cats. That's the teach. I actually heard them say that. God doesn't beget dogs or cats. Gods beget gods. Therefore, if we as children of God are begotten of God, what are we? God. That's his position. This reveals a failure to understand the difference between eternal or divine generation as in the case of Jesus. Listen carefully now. Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. Our begetting is not eternal begetting. It's a spiritual begetting. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, the two are entirely different. Jesus as the Word was and always will be divine. There was never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. He was always God. He didn't become God any time. Deity was not given to him. He is deity. He is divine by nature. He does not have to go outside of himself to find deity. He is the source of deity. We partake of it, but we are not it. We don't generate it. You understand what I'm saying? You plug your fan into the wall. You draw from the generator of BEC or where it is. You are not the generator. You unplug that, you're dead. You can't do that with Jesus Christ. Because life is in himself. He's the source of life. Christians partake of or share in the divine nature. We do not become divine. We share in what theologians call the communicable or shareable attributes or characteristics of God. We share some of his characteristics, but we don't take on all of them. We have wisdom, but we're not all wise. You understand what I'm saying? We can love, but we can't love all together the way God loves. 
We can participate in his love, but we can never apprehend all of it. you understand what I'm saying? Because we are not God. We cannot speak things into existence as God did and he does even today. We cannot do it. And I've heard preachers, yes, I can speak into existence the exact husband that you want. Just tell me how high. Just tell me the color of your hair. And I'll speak him into existence for you. My friends, that borders not only on a misinterpretation of Scripture, it borders on heresy because you're trying to say you are God. This comes, and I'm going to be blunt out here this day because I think we need to be. This is, to me, one of the most brazen attempts to steal the glory of God that these word of faith teachers have come up with when they believe they can do what God does. They teach that we do not need to have faith in God. What we need and what we have is the faith of God. See the difference? Because we are gods, we don't need to have faith in God. Why? Because we have the faith of God. Therefore, because he speaks things in existence, I can speak things into existence. That's heretical. Listen carefully. We do not and cannot have the faith of God to utilize for ourselves. God does not need faith. He is God. Who's he going to have faith in? He is faith. He is. He does not need to go outside of himself for anything. He is the object of our faith, not the exerciser of it. There's no one that he is dependent upon other than himself. And that comes naturally as part of his godness. His being God. Listen carefully how you listen and what you praise God for when you hear it. I regret that that message was proclaimed here. Our faith must be in God who is faithful and powerful enough to do what he wants to be done in and through us. Not in the power of our faith in our faith. See, that's what it comes to. Power comes because of our faith in our faith. Ridiculous. That young man does not know who he is as a Christian. He is thinking too highly of himself, even though he may be in Christ. We have much given to us because we are in Christ, and joint heirs with him of all that belongs to God. But that does not make us God. God would not be unique or the only God if we were God like him. If this were true, this young man was preaching, then we will all be God. And this smacks on Eastern mysticism, where believers all eventually merge into one universal divine something out there somewhere. That's not biblical teaching. And not how, no matter how good it may sound to you, if you accept it, you're being gullible to false teaching. Now very briefly, let me address the matter of divine healing as well. 
And I'm going to do something again just to show that I've preached on this before, I've taught this before. I'm going to read just from a little article concerning healing. A teaching that has been popular since the 19th century says that Jesus died for our sickness as well as our sins. This doctrine means that physical healing is in the atonement. Because Jesus died, you should not be sick. Because the same way he paid for our sins, he paid for our sickness. The implication is that a Christian should have just as much confidence that God will heal their bodies as they have that God will forgive their sins. Also, Christians should not expect it to be God's will for them to be sick any more than it would be his will for them to continue in sin. If you're sick, you continue in sin. If you continue in sin, then you're displeasing God. If you continue in sickness, you're displeasing God. Some take the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 to mean that we, already are, we are already healed and we must merely confess the fact and deny the lying symptoms that appear in our bodies. I heard a preacher. He said, even if I had a headache, I can tell you I got it. I can say to that headache, you lying. I don't feel you. I deny your existence. I actually heard that. Why? Because Jesus died for my sin, my, my, my sickness, and atonement. That's the position. These are lying symptoms, they say, when you have any kind of illness. Now, if you look at 1 Peter 2.24, I think I won't put it up. It's really not about physical healing, if you look at the context. Because not only is the first part of the verse about the forgiveness of sins, the next verse also explains Peter's meaning. This is the importance of keeping it in context. Listen to what it says. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your souls. He's talking about turning away from God. He's talking about sin here. There's no mention of bodily sickness anywhere in this passage. None. And so when it says here to be healed, it really means to be forgiven. When he says you return to the shepherd, shows that Peter means you're healed. I'm sorry, return to the shepherd means healed, coming to Christ. Peter said, for instance, in 1 Peter 2.21, listen carefully. Christ also suffered for you. Now notice this. Leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This is the very opposite of the notion that Christ suffered so that we wouldn't have to. Right or wrong? Now I wrote a paper some time ago and I've got some copies out there for you because I won't go all through it that I entitled Prayer and Healing, Allies or Enemies. It was done for the Mental Association here in talking. It's a, I have some copies out there. I just want to read this from you. It has to do with prayer and healing because there's some people who won't go see a doctor because they believe that they're not sick or their prayer could take care of everything and therefore they don't want to need medication and all of that kind of stuff. And this paper was written in response to that idea. I don't have time to go through all of it, but I just want to read something. I want to re I'm responding specifically to, these, uh, to this teacher that came in to, to here. 
There's a passage in Old Testament which says that in which God hears the prayers of the Israelites or enters into a contract with them and he grants them healing. This is what he says in Exodus 15.26. Exodus 15.26. He said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Isn't that a beautiful passage? But notice now, this was given specifically to Jewish people at a specific time in their history in their dealings with God. And notice, it was conditional. Freedom from illness was only possible if those who were brought out of Egypt kept all of his commandments. Isn't that right? Didn't it say that? It wasn't based on anything that Christ would do in the future. It was what they would do at the present time it was written. The same principle is given in Psalm 34, verses 17 through 19. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Notice the conditions. Broken heart. Contrite spirit. You see that? It's conditional. It didn't happen because Christ would die. Now here's one that is the big one today. Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. This is the one they go to to say that because Jesus died then we shouldn't be sick. Now we can just claim healing at all times. This is the reference to the suffering servant in Isaiah, who is Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, some believe that this passage of Scripture teaches that the atoning work of Jesus Christ guarantees physical healing and that sin is always the cause for illness in the Christian life. I've heard that preach again and again. But that's not what this passage is saying if you read it and study it carefully. First of all, while ultimate physical healing is in the atonement, we will all enjoy final healing through the resurrection. That is true. No doubt about that. But in the meantime, there's no guarantee that we will not be sick. Or even that it's not God's will for us to be sick. The word for healing in this passage is nafa, the Hebrew word. It doesn't only refer to physical healing. It also refers to spiritual healing. And the context in Isaiah 53 indicates that spiritual healing is in view. In verse 5, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's sin. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. In context, it has to do with spiritual healing, not physical healing. Not only that, the Bible tells us of many failures in response to prayer only for healing. I know this might trouble some of you, but you've got to look at the scripture. John 11. Remember the story of Mary, Lazarus? Mary was anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, whom he whom thou lovest is sick. By the way, in scripture, 
Lazarus is the only disciple that is mentioned that Jesus loved. Never mentioned anywhere that he loved John. You know we like to call him the beloved disciple. The only person ever said that Jesus loved here in this context is Lazarus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Notice, this sickness is for the glory of God. Do you see that? Do you see it? Look in the text. How can something be for the glory of God and be sin? That the Son of God may be glorified. Go over to the book of Corinthians, verse 11. Chapter 11. You read about those who were sick and some who died due to the sin around the Lord's table. You know who caused them to be sick and who killed them? It was God. Because of sin. That's why we have to be careful sometimes how we pray for the sick. To make sure we're not at odds with God. Because sometimes the sickness is due to sin. This is where we must depend upon the inner working of the Holy Spirit to teach us what to pray for according to Romans 8 and to place our faith in the will of God for that person rather than in our own desires, however good and noble they may, they may be. Paul himself suffered a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times that we know of. Did God heal him? No. God says, you're going to glorify me in that sickly position condition. Epaphroditus, one of Paul's co-workers, became ill. Paul was unable to cure him, even through prayer or a special healing miracle. Did Paul have power to forgive? I'm, not, I'm sorry, to heal? Yes. He didn't heal him. It was only when Epaphroditus became fatally ill that God himself chose to heal him according to Philippians of Philemon 2.25. Timothy also appears to have suffered from a, stuck, a stomach problem. So Paul prescribes a medicine. Wine. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He wasn't saying to take it to get lifted up live. He had a stomach problem and wine was a medication during that day. Now I could go on and on with all these illustrations here. To show you that when it comes to healing, it is still, it's, uh, uh, because Jesus Christ died, it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be sick. It doesn't mean that all sickness is sin. God uses sickness in a way to glorify himself. You understand what I'm saying? Be careful what you hear, because what you hear many times lead to what you do. Study the scriptures. Show yourself approved under God, a workman, and needed not to be ashamed, rightly, rightly handling the word of God. I felt it my obligation as a pastor here to do this today. And once again, I want to show you that I will do everything possible along with our other pastors to be sure that these things will not happen again. And I want to encourage you that ever you believe that false teaching is cut from this pulpit, you let us know. Be sure now that we are really going to be paying more attention as to who it is that comes here, who it is that teaches in our Sunday school classes, who it is that teaches in our women's meetings and our men's meetings and whatever it is. Be sure of that now. And that's why, in a sense, I thank God for this event. 
but causes caused me to become just a little bit more alert and aware of my responsibility as a shepherd of God's people here. I trust that you might receive this in the spirit in which it was given. If you have any kinds of concerns or questions, I'm open to discussion at any time. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we pray now that you might use your word to minister to us in a way that will build us up as members of the incredible body of Christ and draw us closer to dependence upon Jesus Christ and not ourselves. We are not gods. We serve the true and living God. Our faith is in him, not in our faith. Help us as your people to understand what this means and to live it out so that the power, the true power of the living God will be manifested in our lives. He asked these blessings in our Savior's name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.